Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. This is Open Mike Eagle welcoming you to another episode of What It Happened Was. This is season three, episode seven. Season three, episode seven. Shout out to everybody who's been listening and following along with our story of Dante Ross and his incredible journey, catalog, legacy through the history of hip hop music. This episode here is one that's very, very special to me. The subject of it on paper, ostensibly, is KMD. It's a rap trio out of Long Island, New York, that Dante signed whew, when he was at Electra Records as part of his amazing run. Of course, one member of KMD is Zev Love X, who goes on to become MF Doom. Whew, one of the greatest hip hop artists of all time, an inspiration to me personally in many, many ways. And Dante Ross was there from the very beginning. He signed the group to their first record deal, oversaw the development of their first album, was right there alongside Doom when his brother, who was also in the group DJ Sub Rock, passes away. And that sort of begins the origin story of MF Doom that uh, Dante Ross had a extremely close proximity to. So. In this episode, we'll hear all of that straight from straight from Dante. It's an emotional episode. It's a special episode. So just say all that up front. There's a lot of love, joy and loss in this episode. And uh, you get to hear the stories behind some, the creation of some fantastic music and also uh, get the sense that Dante and everyone who was around that time, um, there's a real sense of grief and loss and mourning. And that's for DJ Subrock and for KMD as a group. And then eventually, as of last year, MF Doom uh, himself, who passed away. With all that said, I don't want to take up too much of your time. This is Open Mike Eagle. This is what it happened was. This is the Stony Island Audio Network. And uh, just a heads up, we got clips and full episodes of this show up on YouTube. Uh, and wherever you're listening, like, rate, rated subscribe it view it all those things we appreciate it it's episode three sorry season three episode seven what it happened was welcome man this is open mike eagle this is season three of what it happened was y'all we got another very special guest with us he needs no introduction but if you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks you know who knew where to find the dope it's dante serving stories like entrees i guess for season three it's a giant like andre mr no shit taker the third base hit maker eggnog innovator the odb motivator he signed a roster full of heavy hitters office messenger the grammy winner motherfucker dante ross in the 90s you would call him the plug signing act after dope act he saw in the clubs is Pete, CL leaders, Dale, and all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. Peace, everybody. This is Open Mike Eagle, and this is another episode of What It Happened Was with our esteemed. Uh, every week, guests, we're getting to the point where we got to call you a captive at this point since we're, since we're actually <laughs> locked in like this. Mr. Dante Ross, what's cracking today? Tell him, man, how are you? Doing all right, man. Doing all right. I'm, I'm excited uh, 
for this conversation because we're going to talk about a group that include that includes definitely my favorite person, my personal favorite rapper of all time, like made the music that has been most impactful on me. Um, a very, very important artist to me personally and, of course, to the world. But the group is KMD. Yes. And, and the rapper would be MF Doom, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because he, um, some people don't know he was in KMD. They're not cognizant of it, That's, right. which, is, which is bugged out to me. Um, the other thing is he is the one artist that I get asked about the most. And he didn't sell the most records. I mean, he sold less records than most, not most, but, you know, than several other cats. But I get asked about him by people more than anyone else. And the ultimate hip-hop nerd questions are always about black bastards, so. Mm-hmm. so yeah, so we're going to dig into that, too, because we're going to try to cover both of the KMD albums yeah, yeah. in this city. We're going to try to do that. Um, just to kick it off, okay, because they come out in 91, and you had a lot of records, I feel like, came out around that time. I did. A lot of groups. You know, brand new being leaders of the new school, then Poobah. So I was in the middle of a lot of shit, and third base was kind of popping before that. And third base kind of led to to uh, KMD, obviously. So yeah, there was a lot of shit going on. And, and I had like, I came out with a, uh, I felt like I had a real strong label identity between brand Nubian and KMD and leaders of new school. There was a synergy between those three groups. And though none of them sold a ton and ton of records, they, they all made, you know, they all were in the black. So I got to keep rolling the dice with them. And brand Nubian was the most successful, but... But KMD was really interesting, and I had a, a deep personal relationship with them, which I tend to have with a lot of my groups at that time. But, but you know, it was, it was a little deeper with those guys. They were younger and maybe more cerebral, and they recorded in my studio, mine and my partner's studio, the, the SD50 studio. They recorded there a lot. They basically did all their demos there. But, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, so, so you mm-hmm. ask the questions. <laughs> well, is it difficult to try to break that many groups at one time? I mean, it's a lot of debut albums from groups I mean, that you signed. I mean, it, it is because my staff was, you know, look, like I'm not going to mince words. The staff was semi-lame. Seemed like I had a new head of promotion every year, every six months. And, and they, you know, there was a real, a real thing, culture clash going on in the music business then. Rap, you know, hip-hop and R&B and... You know, there's a lot of guys that worked at Electra. They didn't want to know about KMD or Brand Newbie. They wanted to know about Howard Hewitt and whatever the, the fuck was going on with that bullshit. You know, it was definitely, you know, it was, it was tense. And the fact that I was like a white kid who came to work with the skateboard and like size 40 jeans, like I wasn't really necessarily on face value um, respected or ingratiated by those cats. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was definitely, there was a culture clash, man. And... And um, I wish, you know, I, I wish I had had a better staff, but it was also an experience in learning how to deal with corporate, the corporate world. So there was pluses and minuses to it. How'd you end up coming across KMD? Was it through the third through base? Through third base, yeah. Yeah, and I would say that uh, initially, Search, I think, probably was the person who put them in front of me. Um, and, you know, they were from Lakeview, Long Island. And he's from... Rockaway, and that's somehow how we knew them. I'm not sure how we caught wind of them, but but I think that he initially was the connection, and him and Pete put them in front of me. But I remember, 
Search was the big proponent initially. And, and look, Search was a good rapper um, and, and a very good A&R guy. So I looked at it with seriousness and it came to me with the hit record, right? They had mm-hmm. Gas Face under their belt. So, and he had a, a stellar verse on that song. A special appearance by KMD's Sam Love X. Gas Face, can either be a smile or a smirk when a pair's a monkey wrench to work once clockwork. Kirk is built to the rim of my cup. Don't tell me you're empty. So fill her up is a... So I heard their demos and they were pretty cool. And we started, uh, I, I signed them in 90. We started making the record, came out in 91. The record, they made a lot of it in my studio. See, back then it's like, you couldn't really do demos that you converted to your albums per se, right? Uh, you, had, you had to do right. it and do it once and then do it again completely. And that's exactly what happened. They did the record twice. So they did the record in my studio for the most part. Then they went to Chung King and redid the record again. And I always felt a little something might have been lost in the process. I didn't that can love happen, the way, right? yeah, and I didn't love the way the record sounded. And if I had known a little more back then, I probably would have had someone else mix it. I, I, I never like, I love John Gamble, but no disrespect, I never loved his mixes. I always thought he had a little, a little problem with the high end. It didn't crash. Gotcha. They weren't as bright as other people's records, and I would always, always argue with him about it. He didn't like things to be super bright. He was more mid-rangey. And that record suffers from that a little bit sonically. Mm-hmm. That said, it, it's a brilliant record. The way that they wove the skits together right. was what, and created dialogue out of skits. And, and what they're talking about was unique. And, and I felt like you know, there was obviously De La Soul influence, but there's also kind of a public enemy influence. But it was also very subversive. Let's enter this jewelry shop. Come on, Mr. Pickle man, hook it up. 14K death bracelet. Man. You can't be. No, I cannot do that. Oh. This is not a Porsche shop. This is Pickle's jewelry. Ah, Mr. Hood, my favorite customer. What can I do for you today? I would like to see some gold rings. Ah, yes, we have these dooty fat gold rings, perfect for your masculine hands. Some earrings from my wife. How about these elephant-studded diamond earrings, perfect for the woman of your dreams? I thought that record was very subversive, and that was kind of the beauty of it, because they seemed kind of innocent. But they were really right. talking about some serious shit. They right? did have that dichotomy, right? Like they seemed like kind of fun-loving young yeah, guys, but then young they had kids, this military. Like, yeah, yeah, but they're also like dropping. They're dropping a lot of gems, you know. They're talking a yeah. lot of a lot of stuff about what's going on in the world, and and I thought that was the beauty of them. They questioned a lot of stuff, but they could question it in an innocuous kind of way, very subversive. And that's what always made me think of Public Enemy. Not that sonically it sounds like Public Enemy, but Chuck D had once told me that Flavor Flav was like the court jester and people who didn't want to listen to Public Enemy would listen to Flavor Flav's court jester antics. So he opened the door with humor and playfulness for Chuck to hit him in the head with the message. And I felt that another side of that kind of equation, a different version of it was KMD on some level. That makes sense. Uh, Before we get too deep into the album, I do want to ask you a couple things about Gas Face. Um... Because Gad's Face is a, a, a super dope classic song. When you look at it, its place in hip-hop history, though, there was a lot of beef that came out of that song, too. There was. Um, you know, particularly with Hammer and other people that got dissed on the song. What do we think about Hammer? 
Was KMD or, or Zev Love X at the time caught up in any of the beef that came out of that? Nah, he never had beef with nobody. Uh, to my knowledge, he was, nah, that, that's not his thing and he's not gonna, you know, that's just, he wouldn't, he wouldn't really deal with that. Nah, I never seen any of that come to him. No, he got along with everyone. Like he, you know, he was, he was a funny guy. Like he was very, very sarcastic. He's super, you know, and you can tell in his music, like the later music, that sarcasm comes to the forefront, that tongue in cheek kind of thing he does. But he was always that person. He, he was a very funny individual. I mean, look, when he died, like I had a multitude of people call Yo, me and go, like, is he really dead? Because, you know, you exactly. never know what's real with that guy, right? The charade is always the antics, and, and particularly mm -hmm. as he becomes MF Doom. Um, on, on Gas Face, Zeb gives you the gas face. <laughs> and in search of all he people, does. tells he does. people to stop dissing you on records. Yo, stop dissing Dante on records, y'all. So what, what did you think of that? Yeah, I, I didn't really <laughs> appreciate it, like, at the time. I thought it was annoying. And more annoying than that was all the people who I knew who busted my balls about it. But I was a supreme ball buster, as was Search and Doom. So we're all busting each other's balls. It was just a, a personal, like, an inside joke that went outside and, and I wasn't necessarily appreciative of it, to be honest. It was kind of a, a pain in the neck. And, and it, it's hard to get taken seriously when your friends are making fun of you on record. So, so I thought it did in my career uh, a disservice. And, and in all honesty, a couple of people in that time period got punched in the mouth for, for taking liberty. Right, because this is kind of doubling down nature. on the Dante the Scrub thing off the of daylight and coming into this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I have a bad temper. And... It's okay if you're my man, you could say anything about me other than my mom's, but, but you know, if I don't know you, don't, don't get too familiar. And it definitely, a few people got slapped around over, over talking out of place um, back in those days. So, so I didn't necessarily appreciate it, but you know what? It was like a big record and, and on some level, I guess it helped me become more notable, semi-famous as opposed mm -hmm. to most A&R people at that time. So as they get to, they get to start working on the record in your spot, yeah. what, what was it like being yeah. in the studio with them? Like, what, who did production? How, did, how was that all coming together? So that, that's a really good question because, you know, like, it's really hard to talk about Doom without talking about Sub. And Onyx was in the band, too. And Onyx is a really nice guy. He's their boy. Now, Onyx was just rapping, though, right? Just rapping. Okay. So Doom would start a lot of the beats. Like he, but he, he's not very patient. So if you hear even his later stuff, it all feels a little unfinished. Right. Raw. So the person who had, right. And the person who kind of was the finisher was, was Sub. I Sub see. was more technically adept. Um, and Gamble had a hand in it as well. And, you know, that was kind of the process. But Sub really technically hemmed up a lot of stuff and came forward with a couple of beats as well. Well, a bunch of beats, in fact. And they worked in tandem, but... But Subrock was more the producer, mm -hmm. uh, which people don't really know. And I remember when Subrock bought, I got, I remember I got a 3000, he bought my MPC 60 from me. And I showed him how to use it in my, in my house. I had a little studio too. And I remember him picking it up like it was like second nature. So, you know, he, he was really uh, the finisher and, and very involved in the production, I say. More so than Doom. I see. So you mentioned earlier, you know, one of the real innovative things about this album is how they built the skits. But what did you remember about how they tied the skits together? I mean, it was uncanny how they had 
all of the records working with each other, mm-hmm. right? How they had figured it all out. And they literally had it all mapped out before they did it. Really? Like there wasn't a lot of second guessing and doing it in the studio. They showed up with their records and would just make shit. And what's even crazier is Doom, I had a, like I had like a bunch of crates in the studio, maybe like 20 crates. And I would let people go through my records, my friends. And, and Doom went through a lot of my records and he knew what records of mine he was going to use when and where. Hmm. It was wild. And he really had, him and Sub had a lot of it mapped out. And they would argue about how they were going to approach it like in a, in a like pretty loving way. But they, they had, you know, sibling rivalry. They bickered a lot in a very sarcastic manner. Hmm. And, and they busted each other's balls a lot. And that's one of the things I remember about those sessions particularly is that there was a lot of a lot of fucking cracking wise at each other. And Doom is a great artist, and he would draw pictures of Sub Roach. So <laughs> Sub Rock became Sub Roach, the, the angry cockroach. And he, he had the big cockroach that was Sub Rock drawings that he would put up on the wall. Because we had all these drawings we pin up on a wall like a mood board yeah. and, this, and, and a door with lots of stickers and drawings. Because my man Gibi, rest in peace, was a great artist, and he would draw this funny shit. But Sub would get it because fucking Doom would like always do Sub Roach drawings. <laughs> and they had, they had a lot of nicknames for each other. And Sub was always like kind of like, oh, man. Like he was like, ah, oh, like this guy again. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He didn't really like, he didn't really start it where, where Doom started. He had a lot of nicknames, Sub Roach, Sub Roll. One time they, they threw a, uh, a roll at him, I remember. <laughs> Doom had a, a role he bought. He was like, give us your new name, Sub Roll. <laughs> so he was like, Sub Roll, Sub Roach, Sub Rock, uh, Sub Rosa one day. Wow. It just went on and on. There was a lot of jokes. And, and um, Sub Rock caught a lot of heat. <laughs> he had thick skin. <laughs> and, you know, with, with Doom, you, you can never really win with Doom. Like, he was around me and Pete and search and and Gibi and gamble to a lesser extent we could all snap mm-hmm. so there was a there was a lot of snapping going on and i remember that as a strong component in making the record it was one thing that was crazy is that we were locked out of our studio for like 6 to 12 8 to 12 weeks i didn't really get to work a lot because gamble was focused on their thing and and i always thought it was a little weird that that happened and gamble i think experimented a bit with them he kind of mm-hmm. he kind of liked some on the job training with KMD, which, which, I, which in retrospect, I probably wouldn't have approached it that way nowadays. I probably would have done it differently. I probably would have had them go in a studio and make the whole record that way, and just somewhere not as expensive as Chunking where they mixed. Right. And that was it. I mean, what's funny is even I remember Humrush. So Humrush was, was a record. I had those drums and something else, and I had them hooked up a different way. And I walked into Chunking, and Subrock was using my drums. And I had them chopped up like, I slowed him down and chopped him up that way. And I was like, what the hell? And he was like, oh, you wasn't going to use them right anyway. Whoa. I was like, yo, <laughs> crazy? He was like fucking <laughs> with me. And, and I remember I was pissed at Gamble because he gave him my drums. I was like, why would you not ask me? Oh, I didn't know. I was like, yo, you sat there while I chopped those up for like an hour. Damn. You know, like, and, and so that's why I got co-production credit on because I was mad. And I remember, and I sold the story somewhere else, I was pissed off and Doom was like, yo, let's go to the store. We should go to this, this deli, the Italian food center. And he bought me my sandwich that day and, and told me that was my advance for using my <laughs> drums. 
And I told him if that was my advance, I wanted to get two Manhattan special sodas. <laughs> so he bought me two, two coffee sodas. Um, and that was that. And, and I, was, I was like, oh, thanks. I ate my advance. So, so I never got paid for it, nor did I want to get paid for it. But, you know, it was pretty funny how that happened. Hum along if you can't sing along. Hum along. Hum along if you can't sing along. You hum along. Hum along if you can't sing along. Hum along. Yeah, hum along with Zev Love X. Look, that record was fun to make. There was zero, zero bad vibes with KMD, man. It was always really enjoyable. And, and Onyx was in the, in the studio a lot. And he was pretty funny. And their whole crew, they had their, the Get Yours Posse GYP was around. And, and you know, those guys were great, man. Jay Boogie and, and everybody, Diego. Was, it was, and Pete Nice was, was around. Search was not around a lot during the making of the record. Pete was around a lot more, and Bobito started to work with Pete at some point. I want to say it was after the first record, but, you know, Curious was around, CM was around. My best friend Paul lived with Curious Uptown, and that was the nerve center. Like, this was like my best friend from high school. And Paul, Paul Moore, who's now a lawyer, um, he was George's roommate, so I was up there a lot. They lived on 97th, and Bob lives right there too. Bobito lives in the, in the, the building next to George's on the same block. And that was like headquarters. We were mm. up there a lot, and and there was like a, a we there was a lot of energy and synergy within our our crews. You know, it was like we were very connected. You know, it was it was a lot of fun, man. It was it was great. It was a great moment in time. I want to quickly before we move on from Hum Rush, that song really caught my ear because first of all, it's a slow beat, and you Super you don't slow. you didn't hear a lot South of that at that time. Screwed. Yeah, that was so different for the time, right? To have something that 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 down tempo, and it's also really interesting because that to me, from this album, is the beat that sounds the most like Doom's later stuff. It is. It sounds very broken, um, and and I had it. I think like it was like eighty six or eighty eight. He slowed it down more. I remember that. And this is pre time compression, so you can really hear it dragging. And he used the, you know, the Sesame Street sample, mm. right? You know, it's Bert and Ernie, hum along, sing along. And I think, but I could be wrong, I think it was my Sesame Street record, but it could have been his. Mm -hmm. We had a bunch of them, and so did he, and I had a bunch of comic book records, and as did he. And he had free reign on my records. I'm not sure if it was mine. We might have the same record. It's not that unique a record. And um, I just thought it was genius, so, you know, how he had, he had Bert and Ernie singing along, and... It was cool, man. It was, it was, um, it was. It may be Big Bird, not Bert and Ernie, but I think it's just really cool how he put that together. It does sound like the later stuff, you know. They had some gems on there that that hassle sample. There's a bunch of really cool shit they used, and and of course, you know, there's Plum Skins, and then there's the God Squad, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, mm -hmm. you know, give a dog a donut. Yeah, with brand Nubians in. And what I thought was cool was that Poobah didn't show up for the session, but Buster did, and Buster got on the remix, right? The Cat oh, Stevens okay. one. So when you listen to the God Squad, there's no Poobah on the remix. Buster filled the slot. There it is. Um, and and Bust was um, always a fan of KMD and of Doom. They he he really you know it was funny because Charlie Brown hated KMD and called he he would always accuse me of favoritism, and on some levels I was. Guilty of such because Charlie Brown drove me crazy and Doom was my man. So 
I, I did probably exhibit some favoritism towards Doom and Sub. Well, what kind of stuff um, were you but, doing for KMD that Charlie wanted you to do for leaders? Man, who knows, man? Charlie Brown has problems. <laughs> he, he's got, you know, he's, he could find a, he could argue with the brick wall. So, um, I don't know. You know, he, he just always accused me of going the extra mile for mm -hmm. them. And in fact, I probably did. They were the underdogs. And he tried to sun them a lot. And Doom, you know, wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, I don't think they appreciated it. Um, but, but on the other hand, Bus was really cool with all them. And he jumped on the, the God Squad record and, you know, nitty gritty. And, and he killed it. It's so good and so smart the way he used to catch Stevens on the remix. And I just thought it was great. So, you know, I was a big fan of, of that record and, and that song. You know, it was, it was um, we had some success. We didn't have overwhelming success. But it was, it was successful enough that we did exercise the option to make a second record. Let's, before we move on from Mr. Hood, let's talk about Peach Fuzz. Okay. Uh, Peach Fuzz is a single that I actually really remember very vividly from my childhood. The video is really cool with, with Poobah playing vibes. Yeah, I, I was really, really into it. And, and, and I, I don't think I heard the album at that time, but it really got me interested in KMD. Because again, these sound like playful, young dudes, you know what I mean? So it kind of resonates with me as a young person. Yeah, um, yeah. And it sounds very different from the album. Like, it's very, like, mellow yeah, and chill. it's more jazzy and somber, like, relaxed, the vibe sample. It was great. On the hills of my chinny chin chin, got many plus plenty. String by string, I think I count like 20. If you loan me an ear, I'm returning with interest. If not, I'll simply twist your wrist. So listen, I mean, I thought it was cool. You know, another thing is, like, Grand Poobah was a fan, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why he's in the video. He liked them a lot, you know. Um, I don't know, man. It was it was a cool song. It was a probably the the best first single. I think Ralph McDaniel did the video. Got mm -hmm. a lot of play on VH1. Um, you know, it was uh, like I said, man. We didn't sell a ton of records, but the energy around them and with them was always great, man. And you know, Doom did the artwork. He created the logo. He put together the front cover, very self-contained and very self-aware. You know, he was his own creative director, so to speak. And, and, you know, like, we had a lot of fun, you know. We had a lot of promo stuff that Pete had made and got out to people. And, and it was um, a learning process for all of us, but a positive learning process. Mm -hmm. And they want to tour with, with De La and and uh, leaders and tribe, I think maybe brand newbie, and they, you know, they toured a bunch. And overall, it was um, it was it was a good experience. It was fun. We spent a lot of time in the basement. We spent a lot of time in Chungking. I spent a lot of time hanging out with them outside of work, and uh, it was cool, man. Those guys were great. I, you know, one of my favorite groups to ever work with ever. And, and like I really talking about, I really. Missed that moment of time, and it really, really makes me miss Subrock, mm -hmm. who was just such a unique individual. He was um, brilliant, uh, innocent, talented, funny, trippy, um, and completely unique. I, I, you know, he was. He was also like extremely cute. You want to give him a hug? He was like <laughs> just like a cool, a cool little kid. Like you're like, he was just great, man. He was. Really nice person with really good energy and also very sarcastic. Oh, the other thing is they didn't, uh, I'll add this, yeah, for sure. with their own record collection, which was steeped with gems, they rarely had a record cover 
they would bring their a bag of records that were just in the most chaotic shape oh of all time and and filthy dirty sounding and and like they just didn't value the the records at all huh. like they were like where well, i'm like my shit's in a bag and you know, like, my shit's pristine. They did not give a fuck. So, like, so some of the sounds, it makes sense for their shit to sound raw because the, the, the quality of their records by the time they're sampling them are probably pretty crazy. Crazy. That makes sense. Filthy. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Now, as we get to, you know, the period after the release of the first record is when we get into the period of time that people generally consider to be like the origin story or like MF Doom is kind of in this period. Yep. So yep. Um, the major events being Sub Rock's passing, um, yeah. the album being shelved, I guess. I'm not sure is that the right word for it. Yeah, there, there's a lot to it. I mean, I can I can kind of tell you it chronologically. Yeah, that w- that's what I'm looking for, if we could put the timeline yeah, in order for us. I'm really versed in it because Doom passed and... I wrote this thing for Jonah Hill about it recently, so so I got it together. Um, so we make the first record, and it's not a huge success. Third base break up, or they're breaking up, and search detaches. We have a call. Well, first I get call, you know business affairs says it's going to cost X amount of money to pick up the option on this, and um, it's too expensive. And they're signed through a production company, which is not necessarily super artist-friendly. Um, we can make another record, but we don't want to pay the mini-max on the second record. So I approached us with Search and Pete, and Pete is um, agreeable to working something out, and Search isn't necessarily, and he detaches. There's lots of tension b- between Pete and Search, and Search and, and me... Um, at that point in time, and and so they kind of detach from, he detaches from the record. At the same time, Karis One is making the heel record. There is 
a verse by MC Search on the heel record on a song that is removed from the album or the verse is removed from the album because KMD takes offense to it. The mm. gods take offense to it and it becomes a thing and it furthers tensions between them. So Search is now detached. He was never seen again while we made the whole record. And I state this all because I'll be really frank about this. He's going to do a season episode on a uh, season long podcast on doom mm -hmm. and i want to be clear he had absolutely no involvement in black bastards whatsoever i see and and was not seen at all and and before he goes and tells another one of his infamous fables like writing for rakim i want to state what happened mm -hmm. so so that is that is the the plain simple facts of it so we proceed to make the record after we renegotiate the deal and Pete is uh, with me, riding shotgun. He's manager, half A&R guy. Um, they start making a record. We're not going to make it with Gamble. We're going to make it with a guy named Rich Keller who did a lot of beat nut stuff. He did this, he did this Pete and I solo record. So, so Rich is a really good engineer. He has a studio in Jersey City. Um, they first start to make the record, sub-rocking him. They go upstate to Malachi York's retreat that has a studio. Because wow. I don't know if you know that Dr. York Dr. was also York. an R&B singer. I had no idea you know? about that. That's wild. Uh, yeah, he, he made R&B records, and they were part of the Ansar Allah community. They were devotees of Ansar Allah uh, sect of, of Islam, mm -hmm. and they followed Dr. York. And so they went to um, upstate to Dr. York's studio and his retreat, and they worked for a while. And it came back with the initial basis of what would become Black Bastards. Mm -hmm. They come back and they're gonna start working with Rich. I believe they started working with Rich. And, um, you know, there was a lot of psychedelics getting done at that time. And um, things get trippy. Sub Rock one day decides he found a time machine amongst other wild things and decided to give away a lot. A, a lot of money he had and wow. he couldn't get it back <laughs> and he was fine with it because he had found the, he had found the key to time travel <laughs> amongst other things it was kind of kind of uh it was bugged out they were hanging out with cm a lot up at 97th street all the time cage entered the picture because cage is the rapper cage who is pete's artist and him and sub become really good friends and sub rock after a night, I think, of taking acid, but I could be wrong, just chilling. I'm not really sure of the exact specifics. Uh, leaves Cage's house in Washington Heights and troops back to Long Island. When he gets back to Long Island, he goes across the Long Island Expressway after taking the LIR home, and he's hit by a car under mysterious circumstances wow, and okay. killed. Okay. 19 years old, maybe 20 years old. And, and he's killed, and we never find out who killed him, and there's a lot of mystery around what happened, some accusations that it was purposeful. Um, no one really knows. I, I don't really know the minutiae around it specifically, but I, I do know it was a tragic loss, and uh, we're, we're all crushed. Mm. Collectively, we, we had a, a large group of us who all hung out together, Curious, Bobito, um, Pete Nice, you know, Gamble, me, the SD50s, all the CM guys, Lord Seer, 
um, K-Knit, who, who passed away, rest in peace, my man Paul, a lot of us, you know, we're, we're, all, um, we're all very hurt by what happened. And, and, and it's tragic when, you know, a young, a young person who has so much to live for uh, is killed. And, you know, it threw everything upside down, man. Everything was, you know, everything gets put on hold for a minute. I remember that they didn't really have enough money to pay for their service. Mm. Doom was a new father. And we, we put, um, I passed the hat at work. And me and Pete paid the difference. And we took care of the service. And I only say that because it'll show you that you don't get rich in a rap game. Right. And, um. And, and also because uh, my publicist at Electra, my two publicists, Doom, they love Doom a lot, and Sub, Beth Jacobson and, and Shelby Mead helped, helped get the money up to make this happen. So we, you know, there's a memorial for him in, in Long Island, and, and I'm going to say this again because I want to be clear about some things. And, you know, there's not a dry eye in the house. And Search showed up, and, and under duress was asked to leave by some people. Mm. And um, Sub Rock, which I thought was fucked up because I felt like Search was there to pay his respects right. regardless of where you are with each other at that point in time. And this is why I remember it so much. I believe that he should be allowed to pay his respects. Things happen, right? I don't think, I don't think he ever was malicious or, or I should say vindictive um, towards KMD. I think he was exploitive, but I don't want to say vindictive or, you know, like, and we're, I don't deem Pete as being exploitive. So, and I say that just to clarify shit, because he's going to go run his, run his story, and, and I deal with actual facts, mm-hmm. and, and that's that. So, you know, I, I remember during the service, and Brian Coleman and Check the Technique really, really got, he really told the story well in his book. Doom put a boombox next to the casket and played KMB's music and played some of Black Bastards, mm. and it was very emotional, man. And after the service, there was another altercation involving Search who kind of tried to like pay his respects and, and uh, there were some, some threats levied at him and he was made to leave and, and um, that closed the chapter, the door on any involvement he had in Black Bastards whatsoever. So obviously Doom needs to take a time out. He just lost his brother. Right. But, but he doesn't take a very lengthy time out. And he proceeds to make the rest of the record in Jersey City with Rich Keller at his studio. And Doom was, I don't want to say homeless, but doing a lot of couch surfing, staying with George, stayed with me, stayed with Stretch, stayed with Rich. I don't think he wanted to be in Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wasn't, and, and he was a bit of a vagabond. Um, but never once did he ever talk to me about his brother's death. He was a bit stoic about it. He's just pushing through. Right. And create, you know, finishing a record, and I believe it was a cathartic exercise for him. Um, I wish he was here to, to, to talk about it. And he, the one thing I'll say is that behaviorally, he tr- started to drink more, and he his sarcastic nature leveled up. Mm. He was more sarcastic than ever, and I believe probably a defense mechanism for all the internal things he was dealing with. But he, he, he forged on, 
and he made the record, and um, he was fucking with Grimm and them a lot, you know, my man Jay Black, rest in peace, um, and and a bunch of a bunch of cats from Uptown who are George's people. It was a heavy moment, and they delivered the record right before the holiday. I'd, I'd heard the record in pieces. I can't tell you I was in the studio a lot. I was at Chung King with them. I think I went to Rich Keller's studio one time, mm. and I kind of felt like it was important to give Doom space. And I trusted Doom anyway. He knows what he's doing. And he would come and play me mixes. But I wasn't in the studio hands-on a lot. I had a lot of other stuff going on, including the Grand Poobah record that I was very involved in, um, hands-on and in the studio. With. So, so my time was, was thin. But, you know, Pete was around, and, and I trusted Rich, and I got the mixes, and I, you know, I, I communicated with Doom a lot. He would come and play me mixes, as would Pete. And they delivered the album before the holiday. And the sum of its parts was impressive. I thought a better record than the first one. A quick question. Just a quick, yeah. quick question for you. Because this album is a lot more like mature than Dark. the first one. It's a lot darker, right? So was that darkness present in the first version that they went and did? Or did that darkness come out more as well, they, was working they did, on it alone? They didn't do a whole first album. So that they did songs. Right. And it was definitely more street. Got you. Okay. Right. So And rap music was more street. It had changed. So they weren't, and they were older, right? And they had had children and, you know, things happened, right? Mm -hmm. So, and they were running around with, with Grimm and, and Uptown a lot. And they were around a more, you know, more street element at that time. And they were all, you know, they're young black men. So, you know, regardless of how playful that first album is, they're still young black men in America. So mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not suckers. They're not soft. You know, they're just conscious. So, you know, life had changed and the music changed to reflect that. So it was going where it was going, but I will say that Doom's uh, subs passing had Doom explore some darker themes, you know, and I felt like musically it reflected that, mm -hmm. uh, the passing of his brother, you know. I mean, that's, you know, you have to understand the relationship was symbiotic between right. them. It was yin-yang, you know, like, you know, they were damn near telepathic, right, so... They spoke their own coded language and they could speak without communicating. And it was, you know, they had as close a bond as I've seen with brothers ever and more like twins than brothers, definitely in yin yang. And, and, you know, his part of him was gone, right? And he said that to me one time later on. He was like, when I was like, man, you know, I just, I, you know, I miss Sub. And he was like, Sub's still here, right here, you know, because I think he felt that Sub was still with him. And, in a lot of ways, he was, spiritually. And he, you know, they delivered the record. Sub did a lot of the production on it, which people don't know. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of it and made a lot of it initially at George's house. He had the MP up there. And he produced a lot of the beats and finished a lot of them, was very involved in the production of it. And now Doom had to do what Sub usually did. It was his turn to finish it. Right. And he did, and... They gave me the record, him and Pete, and I listened to it over, I got a couple days before vacation, holiday break, I thought it was great. I really, really liked it. I thought it was a special record. Um, I thought that they had leveled up. Absolutely. And, and, and I felt like it was, um, in keeping with the times, it, it had a competitive chance, 
Um, I thought it would be bigger than the first record. They had grown in stature a bit. Um, and and um, I know people who had the record, John Schechter, I gave him a copy, I believe, as, and I think Stretch had it. I know Bob had it, Pete had it, and the consensus was that it was a much better record. And I remember um, John Schechter, from the source particularly, loving it. Um, he was a champion of KMD, and I have to give him a shout out for always, always being a champion of KMD before it was a cool thing to do. Um, we, he delivered the artwork, I believe, post the holiday. We got to finish artwork. I had scheduled a mastering session, delivered the artwork. As always, he, del he did all the artwork, and, you know, he, he was playing on the game Hangman. Right. You know, so it was the, a cryptic message to the world, Black Bastards, and he was killing Sambo, meaning Sambo was gone, and, and I believe he was probably going to move on to a different logo, but I can't tell you because... It never happened. And, you know, he was killing the, the myth of Sambo, putting mm -hmm. it to rest, right? And I think when you look at the artwork, it's a powerful statement. Right. As, as was most things Doom did. He was a very special person. And he had a lot to say. And he was saying it in his own cryptic language. But, you know, man, that shit was powerful, man. And, you know, Black Bastards. It's like make you shake your head, make you laugh. Can't believe that motherfucker did that. Mm -hmm. That's wild. Um, but it was great, and it was approved by my art department. There was no pushback. Advances went out. I believe we shot a video, and I can never really remember if we did or didn't, but for what a, what a end knows, mm -hmm. and, which is a controversial title. Advances were sent out, and Havelock Nelson and Terry Rossi, Havelock wrote the wrap-up, the rap column, the first rap column for Billboard, and Terry Rossi wrote for the Monday Morning Monitor, which was a radio recap. She had written an R&B column. They were reporters for Billboard. And they, I believe Havelock came first, but Terry Rossi, Terry Rossi came first, I think. And she had more juice. But Havelock, who was a friend of mine, I thought, threw it to the wolves and said that we were irresponsible. The label, meaning we were irresponsible in putting the record out. He printed this? And bit. He printed it, and in he Billboard? can pull it up. Yeah, I can even send you a link to it. He printed it and said he couldn't believe how irresponsible the powers would be at Electra Records were for ordaining the cover art um, and a record called Black Bastards, the single called What an End Knows. In doing so, he, I believe, called, called from my head, in a sense. You know, because if anyone's irresponsible, when it comes to the rap music at Electra Records, it's Dante Russ. Right. And, and I, thought it was, I thought it was foul. And he could have picked up the phone and talked to me or talked to Doom or Pete. He knew all of us. Um, and he, he didn't even try to do that. Do you he feel like Doom, he was misinterpreting the theme? Of or course he was. Okay. Of course he was. He, he never had. I've talked to Havelock about it. And to his credit, he owns it. Like, and I got to give him respect for that because, you know, we had some discourse a couple of years ago. And I said, yo, man, you know, I'm just going to tell you, you, you threw you know, my man to the wolves, and you never, and this is before Doom passed, and, and I said, you, you never gave him a chance to defend his art. Mm. You never had any dialogue, any discourse with him to find out his point of view. You just convicted him without knowledge of what was going on. It was conviction without investigation, and I don't respect it. It's bullshit journalism. And he copped to it, you know, and, and um, but you know, point taken, it came out, and 
feathers, feathers were ruffled. Ice T's debacle had been one year earlier. Cop so this was okay. So and he was part of Warner Music Group. That was on That's the same, the same basic label family as Electra. Right, exactly. We're all we at that time. Now it's Warner Music Group. It was we are Warner Electric Atlantic. And um, feathers were ruffled, man. And Terry Rossi and Havelock, and I didn't know Terry Rossi, and she's an R&B person. She also was critical about the record, and she caused a big sting. And she was connected to a lot of big dogs in the music industry. I think a lot of black, black urban heads of departments at various labels knew her well. And within Warner, within WIA, rather, uh, there was a lot of c concern and contentious feelings about the artwork. And her problem was also with the artwork or her problem was with the album itself? The artwork. Okay. It stemmed from the artwork. I don't think, you know, I'll be honest, I don't think she ever listened to the album. See, that's, that's, that's the part that really sucks. Yeah, and I don't know if Havelock did either. Look, if you had listened to the album, you would probably understand the rhetoric and the, and the discourse he's talking about. Hard not to. Um, on top of it, the insensitivity. My man had just lost his brother six months right. prior. Maybe you want to talk to the brother. And look, man, it's awkward for me to say some of this stuff but I'm, as, a, as a white man, but I felt like they did a young black man a great disservice. Mm -hmm. And I felt it very irresponsible as black men and women, elders, to have treated him as such. And the offense that occurred has never been forgiven mm. by me. It has always bothered me, and it will probably bother me to the day I die, because I believe that my job as an AR person is to defend my artist's artwork. Art, period. Artwork, messaging, point of view. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what I do and did. And um, they, didn't, they didn't do the proper investigation. They didn't do the proper research to find out what was really going on. So, you know, my boss called me, Bob Krasnow, who, who, rest, who died, rest in peace. He's been vilified a little bit in this, but he doesn't deserve to be. He told me straight up that there was a lot of concern over the record and that the group was going to have to change their artwork, that they couldn't issue the artwork as was. Um, and I delivered this news that there was a lot of concern about it. And we were supposedly going to be granted an audience with the, the, the people in power at WMG, including the, the highest-ranking black people within, rather, WIA, within the WIA organization. Mm -hmm. And I was to include, I was told, Sylvia Rohn, Dick Parsons, Merlin Bob, um, Vincent Davis, who had a label deal through Electra, and a couple other people. I was told that Vincent Davis found the artwork offensive, as did Sylvia Rohn. This has never been confirmed. I, I can't tell you for sure if this is fact. Um, and no knock on either of those people. I have nothing but respect for them. Um, but, but so we were going to have a tete-a-tete -tete with, with these people. And, um, you know, Sire Records had the year earlier came out the gate saying we will not bow to censorship. Mm. Howie Klein sent a, an infamous letter around that went to everyone in the company. And it said, you know, we, we are not bowing to censorship. The PBA will, will not censor our, our art. And they turned around and they, they bowed down. And the PBA and Dan Quayle, um, who was the vice president at the time, basically 
uh, destroyed Ice T's relationship at Sire Records and Body Counts record never came out, or it came out and got got taken off shelves. So we were the fallout of that. I think my boss envisioned as being part two. So we were called, we were gonna have this big meeting and it was at like eight in the morning or nine in the morning and that was an ungodly time for me or doomed to be awake Mm -hmm. and alert, but we, we showed up and we got called them to Krasnow's office. He told me the meeting was canceled. He called me in first. Whoa. He said the meeting is is canceled and we're not going to put the record out. We're gonna we're gonna give the give the kid back his record. I said he was in my office here for the meeting. And he said, well, well. To his credit, he said, well, there was a little more to it. I was like, you know, this is fucking bullshit. And he goes, Dante, it is bullshit, and bullshit rolls downhill. Uh. And today it's rolling your way. I'll never forget he told me that. And then later on, he, he told me some other things, but I'll, I'll get to that later. So, so um, I want to grab Doom. And, and, I, and Doom knew something was up by the look on my face when we went into office. And he told us, uh, we're not going to be able to put the record out. Um, and we are, the meeting's canceled. We, we're not going to be able to put the record out. We're going to give you back your master's. In addition, we'll give you a fee for leaving the label of $25,000. Do the 20 or 25. So, so Doom handled it like a champ. It was brief. I will give Krasnow credit. He looked him in the eye and told him it. And Bob Krasnow was like a legendary music figure. He, he signed Keith Sweat. He signed, I mean, not Keith Sweat, Anita Baker, Parliament Funkadelic, Richard Pryor. You know, he, he worked for James Brown. He was a heavy guy who loved black music. Um, he was a maverick, and I would find out later that he was on the ropes at Electra. He couldn't fight the battle. He had signed Dokken for an ungodly amount of money and Huey Lewis in the news, and they both tanked, mm. as well as a box set by Metallica, and they had never loved him anyway, and they were trying to get rid of him. And he would later tell me that, I just can't fight this fight right now, I'm on the ropes. And he would be relieved of his job less than a year later, and replaced by Sylvia Rohn. So, you know, we went back to my office after this happened, and, and I was fucking pissed. And I got a bad temper, and I was fucking pissed. Doom, surprisingly, wasn't pissed. And I remember him saying to me, so I had all these, this case of wine someone gave me for my, um, for, for the holidays or something, and it was sitting there, sweet premium wine. Mm. I had two cases of it, and he would always come in and drink my sweet premium wine. I didn't drink wine much. And that was as good a day to start drinking wine as ever. And, and we started drinking. And um, he told me, he, he, he didn't hold me responsible and that he, he said, I should get dropped more often. I got my record back in, $25,000. I laughed. dropped more often. And I was like, Jesus Christ. In retrospect, I realized it was a small thing to losing your brother, mm. losing your record deal. Right, the scale you know, of that. You know, and I always say that Doom died three times. Um, the third time being the finite one. His, his death was in three acts. A part of him died when Subrock died. I think a part of him died when KMD lost their record deal. Hmm. And then the third and final act is when he physically passed. So, you know, I, always, I, I thought about that a lot when he passed. And um, look, man, Doom is... He... He is, um, and once again, I have to tread lightly on some of what I say. 
as a white man, it's not necessarily my place to speak on certain things, but, but I feel that I can speak on this. Doom, to me, is a manifestation of uh, a young black man in America. He mm -hmm. took all the shit in the world, sent his way, his brother dying, losing his record deal, and reemerged from that pain and injustice to create an alter ego based on this pain and suffering, MF Doom, and become a much bigger and more important artist than he may have been if he was KMD. And I think that black people traditionally take, uh, take the shit handed to them and create beautiful art. Mm. That is the blues. And to me, Doom's life is, uh, it's kind of the blues. Right. Man. Uh, I got. I got to take a sec. Yeah, for sure. Got to. I got to just chill for a minute. No, no problem. It's, um, it's hard to talk about. It's totally understand. Yeah, I'm good. So, part of it. Part of what's fascinating about this story is how quickly this escalated from being just about an album cover to. Not only is the album not coming out, which nobody has a problem with the music, um, and they're they're being released from the deal. Like, why do you think that escalated so quickly? It doesn't even sound like anybody was like, it doesn't sound like Doom had the opportunity to be like, okay, well, I'll just change the covers. Like, before he knew it, everything was gone. I think people were scared. I think they were scared the Cop Killer Part 2 was coming. I think... Though I'm never, it's never been confirmed, I believe that, that Krasnow probably buckled. Um, he told me initially, like, we, I'm defending this, like, I defend you and your, your, your vision. He never listened to the record, but he's like, I'm defending you because I know you, you know, you're, you know, you believe in this. And uh, I believe that he didn't feel empowered enough to defend me, and he made the decision probably at the behest of, a higher up in WIA, in the WIA organization, Bob Mercado or Ger Gerard Levin or, or Dick Parsons um, put the clamps on him and he wasn't going to fight the fight. Mm -hmm. So before anyone was given the opportunity to fight the fight, he nipped it in the bud because he was going to lose the fight. That's what I believe happened. But I don't know. Um, he, he, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know exactly what happened, the intricacies of it. I was never let let in behind the closed doors mm. of what occurred. I will tell you that I contemplated quitting my job in a later meeting with him. We got into it, and I told him he should have never signed that piece of shit, Huey, <laughs> that no-talent bum, Huey Lewis. <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, you signed that fucking bum, Huey Lewis. And, and he was like, he didn't really appreciate that. I thought I might get fired. I didn't. I thought that... Uh, I contemplated quitting. I didn't. John Schechter interviewed me for The Source, where he wrote an editorial piece about it. I spoke my mind. Mm -hmm. I was warned by people not to. I did anyway. My, my boss, Bob Krasnow, did not fire me. I think he, he knew that I was probably right, and he also knew he couldn't do shit about it. And look, this is one of the times I learned about the music business. Shit ain't fair. It's, it's called a business, mm. right? So, how close did how close does I'll album take. get to coming out? Like, did it have a release date and all of that? It had a release date. Mm. Had a release date. Had everything. Release date, artwork. Um, I believe that there's promos of the there's promos with no cover. 
so the promo tape went out without the artwork. Pete Nice has the approved artwork. He mm-hmm. sent me a, a scan of it not that long ago for my book. And uh, it's out there. You know, it's, it was out there. People had the record. It was, you know, like a lot of people have that tape. That mm-hmm. tape is not that rare. So, you know, it was, it was on the schedule. It was coming. Mm-hmm. It would have been out in, I don't know, six weeks after the single, four weeks after. It was in production. It was, I mean, it wasn't in production, but it was everything short of going into full production. So it's around this time that Zev kind of disappears. Zev Love X uh, is kind of all disappears. He, he was living in Midtown. He lived in Hell's Kitchen on Ninth Avenue. Yeah, man, I didn't, I didn't see him a whole lot. I know he, he stayed with Stretch for a while. He was working on shit up there. Stretch had a little studio. I didn't see him a whole lot for the next few years. When I did see him, though, it was all love. It was never, there was never any contentious feelings whatsoever. I believe that he knew that I did everything within my power to, to defend him, and I did. And, you know, like, the other thing is, I didn't quit my job, and I don't think Doom held it against me. And that was that, you know. He, he would surface here and there, you know, but I didn't see him a whole lot. I remember going to his house on Ninth Avenue at one point. Um, for some reason, I can't even remember what it was. Maybe to get him some weed or some shit. I don't even remember, but I didn't see him a whole lot. And then he relocates to Atlanta. Um, I did reconnect with him. In the late 90s, when he starts putting his records out, I think I saw him at the New Yorican once, and he was around in the orbit of Bobito and those guys. But, but I didn't see him a whole lot. But when I did, it was all love, and he always, always asked me about Gamble and Gibby. He loved mm-hmm. John Gamble. Um, that was his man, man, man. So he'd always ask, how's Gams? Uh, probably the first thing he asked me. You know, that was that. Like, and... and we reconnected, I think, when he kind of became, um, when he started dropping more records. I'd see him more and speak to him on the phone more. He probably wanted to communicate with everyone more when he had his shit back together and he got his shit together. And he was like, now I'm MF Doom. Fucking watch me now, you know? Do you remember the first time you ever heard of MF Doom? I, I, I do. Well, because he was MF, there was MF Grimm first. Right, right. Right, so that was their, their little crew. And so, you know, I think he, he was always called Doom. His last name's Doomalay. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think prior to him being, putting out records as MF Doom, I was aware that he was going to be MF Doom. But I can't say for sure. And obviously when, when Gastrols and Dead Bank came out, I mean, I, I was aware that that was Doom. He's super. It's the Doom, super metal it go like I hold mics like niggas hold their girls tight and those records were huge Fat Beats records, right? Right. Um, the other thing is when we made Curious's album, which is a little later, we have a song that Curious does that's dedicated to Sub Rock on it, Leave You With This. And, and it starts with him calling himself the Cucaracha. Hmm. 
he hits a sub rock rhyme and he says the cucaracha with soul and that's how it starts mm. so you know and i remember doom liking that song and ordaining it but but you know when he started showing the new eurekan with like a scarf around his face yeah. and the primitive versions of the mask probably when he re-entered my consciousness and and we would have lapses of talking and and communicating and seeing each other but you know like whenever we spoke or communicated it was always um celebratory and uh he loved to send me things like when he made his wallabies he sent me his wallabies that's tight i got they sent me the dunks you know he knew i liked certain things we 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 all like you know the brand newbians included x and pooba and me and you know, a lot of us have a similar aesthetic of what we like, whether it's wallabies or, you know, whatever, you know, fucking weed or whatever. It's <laughs> a similar thing, this area that we bond over. And sarcasm is in the center of all of it. Did y'all, did y'all ever end up working together again on anything? Man, we talked about it so much and we never fucking did. And I didn't put him on my stimulated compilation and I bumped into him and he was mad at me for it. Mm. He's like, Unk, what happened? So that was a, a miscue on my part. Um, and and he was also sometimes hard to find. He'd in and out. You never knew where he was. Right. And I remember him being mad at me, but we always, you know, several times I tried to get a Dell and Doom project together. They always talked about doing it. They were good friends. And Dell was actually at the service, him and Domino. We never got it together. I sent him folders of breaks uh, periodically throughout the years. I turned them onto some records. And I sent him a large folder of breaks for the proposed Doom Dell record. Dell was in it, in on it. Doom was supposedly in on it. Um, I almost tried to do it at ADA. They were full of shit. They didn't want to do it. But I talked to Devin, who wanted to do it, and we just never did it. Um, he was in St. Lucia or in Grenada living. We were talking on Skype a bunch, and his son son passed mm-hmm. his son his son malachi passed and uh prior to him passing doom was trying to convince me to go visit him down he's like you need to come down Unc. um and and i think if i gone there maybe we would have actually got the project started and i didn't go i'm such an asshole it's one of my biggest regrets that i did not go to visit him i think it was 217 216 we we're talking about it and that's when the conversations really ratcheted up about trying to do the record we didn't get it done mm. and uh, i have it wasn't meant to be, and I'll just leave it at that. You know, it's it's a big regret of mine to not have done it. Um, but, you know, man, even if i gone there, who knows what would happen. I might not have gotten it done. and might have just bugged out for a week and fucking told jokes. Who the hell knows? I know I, I really regret not going to see him. And I, I also love the fact that Sadiq um, from Rhymesayers really held him down and took right. care of him. Man, 100%. Gavin and, and Ben, they really looked out for his legacy and, and you know man doom comes from the grand poobah school of of gaming the game <laughs> and i got you know and and sadiq helped him straighten out his game in the gameness and and i have to give uh big big props to him for that and, and Devin harvitz you know but man doom is a complicated complicated individual one of the smartest most insightful sarcastic 
funny, witty, creative, and, and truly unique and special people, man. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to talk about it, man. Absolutely. And I, I kind of like talked to Bob Beetle about it the other day. And I think this is going to be the last time I talk about it. That's real. Um, you know, I want to I leave it alone. Um, it's in my book, and, and I just kind of want to leave it alone. I don't want to ever exploit his memory or, mm-hmm. or, or overplay my importance in the myth of MF Doom and the fable. Um, I was there in the beginning. I remained a friend, and, uh, you know, I just think he was so special. He, he holds a, a special place to me and to all of our friends. And I don't think anyone ever told him that. And if we did, he would have told us to go fuck ourselves, <laughs> made a joke out of it. He would have, he would have ridiculed us. <laughs> right. But he was really a special guy. And, and I think we all know how special he was amongst each other. And hence, all of the love that we all showed him in his passing. You know, a lot of people knew he died. Not a lot, but several people knew he died in October. I did not know that. But I found it so fitting that the yeah. man behind the mask dies on Halloween. I can't think of anything more fitting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's been talk about trying to do something in his honor around Halloween, a doom fest. I don't think it happens this year, but one day I hope it will happen. Um, and, you know, he, he left an indelible mark on the culture, on music, and on, on my uh, existence. And, uh, you know, one year... My two SD50 partners died, and mm-hmm. that's and a heavy, heavy year. Respect for all the all of your I mean, losses. I, that's an, that's an incredible amount of people to lose that's close to you. I mean, I have a uh, this picture, and it's Sub Doom, Gibby, and Gamble. My goodness, I took it, and they all died, and I sent it to Doom when Gamble passed on October 16th, and. Uh, Sadiq hit me back, which is weird, because Doom always hits me back. See, I'm going to make sure Doom gets this, which I found weird. 14 days later, Doom was dead. Mm. So now it makes some sense. It's crazy, man. You know, uh, it's, a, it was, it's a wild year. And I was thinking that if, maybe if I hadn't taken the picture, was in the picture, I might be dead too. Mm. Who the fuck knows? But, uh, man, that picture encompasses a chapter of my life. And uh, all four of those guys are gone. And, you know, I love them all. Yeah, that's 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 so rough and such a big, incredible amount of of loss to go through in uh, in one year. So, uh, man, just just respect for that, and I'm glad to be able to give some space to shine light and show love to all of them. Um, after after a year like that. Um, as we wrap up, um, I want to give you a chance, you know, to, to, to speak on him and his work in a little bit of a less personal way. Um, I'm curious, just in the Doom era with all of his um, alter egos and different projects, was there, was there anything he dropped in that Doom era that you feel like resonates with you the most? Um, Mad Villain. Yeah. I mean, Mad Villain is so fucking amazing.
living off borrowed time, the clock ticked faster. That'll be the hour they knocked the slick blaster. And to me, one of the greatest, um, one of the greatest examples of postmodern, um, you know, postmodern sampling sampledelic music like you know because we can't sample like like we used to you know it's one of the greatest examples of of post golden age sample driven music it is a testament to him and mad libs genius and their creative genius together you know there's there's legend that a second one was out there in the works it never got done for whatever reasons um, I think people who weren't the artists got in the middle of things and it never worked out. Mm -hmm. Shame we didn't get that. I love that record. I love uh, Danger Doom. Yeah. Um, of course, I love the first, you know, I mean, the first one, Doomsday and, and MF Food. They're mm -hmm. all amazing in their own separate ways. Operation Doomsday is ridiculously amazing. To hear them come back like that is, was just a big fuck you to the world. Um, but to me, it culminates at the pinnacle with Mad Villain. Word. Mad Villain's just so fucking powerful. You know, he's, I mean, he's rapping his fucking ass off. He on really that is killing it. You know, he's, you know, he's freed from the, from the responsibilities of having to do production. And he's got such high level beats and he's just going for it on every song, just going for it. I feel like Mad, Mad Lib was, sh he showed out. Yeah, I was like, did. Mad Lib showed out. He did. He's like, oh, okay, I'm going to really show out right now. And that's when Mad Lib really entered my consciousness as, as being that, that dude, you know? And that record is, you know, it's fucking incredible. I mean, accordion, just all that shit, man. That shit is, you know, it's funny too, because I listened to it a lot after he died, after not listening to it for a long time. And whoa, it's fucking, and he is rapping his ass off. Well, that's all we wanted to touch on today. I mean, it's so we're, we're, we're privileged and fortunate to get to hear from you on so many pivotal points in the story of this person who was important to all of us. And it's so rare we get to actually hear from somebody who was there at some of those most um, critical moments. And because and there are a lot of stories out there. There's a lot of hearsay. There's a lot of mythology to the man and, yeah. and the story behind the man. Yeah. So it's really dope to be able to hear from you you know, the, I mean, the facts I, I just moment. wanted to keep it as as honest and factual as possible. I don't I didn't really want to lend myself to hyperbole. Sometimes we're all guilty of revisionist history, truth and subjective truth. And I just want to try and make sure that I'm as truthful as as I could be. You know, I, I'm not super important in the MF Doom part of the story other than I help him, you know, Put, be put forth to the world. Um, but, but you know, he was someone I admired watching him mm -hmm. do his hustle. You know, he got handed all the bad shit in the world and he fucking overcame it all. And the metaphor for Dr. Doom, if, you, if you're in the comic books, yeah. rising from the dead is like super crazy. And I was really curious to see, you know, I heard there was going to be a third iteration, Sadiq had told me. I really wish I could have seen it. Um, but, you know, man, the last few years, I had some good Skype sessions with him, and I had to tell him to take the mic, the mask off. Mm. I was like, he Skyped me with the mask on. I was like, take that dumb <laughs> shit off. I was like, this is me, man. He was cracking up. You know, I, I, we had a lot of jokes. He was like, he's like, yo, you're you're an old Jew now, and I was like, yeah. I was like, yo, your, your stomach's up in your chest. What happened? <laughs> And it, it just went went on from there. So, so you know, all that like, sweet premium wine, man. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> man. No, 
he, uh, the jokes, you know, when it's like when you, when you connect with your old peoples, with your, your, your men's, it's like the jokes start off right where they left off, you know? Absolutely. And, and I, I got to thank Devin for reconnecting us and Sadiq and, and those guys when, when, you know, ever I needed to reconnect, we reconnected. And honestly, I probably had spoke to Doom the last five, six years of his life more than I had a whole bunch prior. You know, there was a gap in there at some point. Um, and it was, it was cool, you know, to know that he was doing good and, and that he was still MF Doom. I, I felt terrible when the son died and mm-hmm. communication slowed down for a minute. But I really wish I could have got the record done with him, the Del Doom thing. And this wasn't meant to be, you know. Um, that said, like, look, the, the whole, he's your rapper's favorite rapper. Yeah, absolutely. That's your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. 100%. You know, and, and, and um, I think that's a, a great way for him to be remembered. Well, I'm glad that we were able to um, leave at a place where, you know, y'all are, y'all are laughing and smiling and cracking jokes on each other. I think that's a wonderful way to commemorate him. Um, there's a lot of dark in the story and a lot of light in the story. So I'm glad we were able to end in a, in a, in a smile. He's, he was triumphant in the end, you know, to me. Like, I feel the triumph in his life and his life force. So we have to celebrate that. Absolutely. You know, and he also was like, look, right now, everyone lives in this independent space musically. Rap music has embraced this, this form of independence. Well, Doom's one of the people who pioneered that. Absolutely. I would say him and, him and Cool Keith came from major labels, and they reinvented themselves via the independent Fat Beats lane and owned themselves. And, like, you know, that, to me, is a role model for a lot of shit motherfuckers are doing now. That, that's the path you I know, walk, for at, sure, business-wise. You know? I mean you know, run the jewels on down, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a lot of people, even like, you know, more regional Southern driven music as well, always was, had an independent bent, but for things that are more cerebral and encompass some more intellect, you know, he's one of the role models for independent music. Him, Company Flow, Cool Keith, mm-hmm. they really showed people that you ain't got to buy into the bullshit to be who you want to be and be successful. It's like the indie, it's like the rap version of, of what indie rock was they were able to have it's that exactly, it's exactly so what it many is. years it's 100 what it is but he opened it yeah, up. right you have a career mm-hmm. right you don't need to worry about a hit record right what your spins are like what radio is doing with you you know you can tour and and this that, and the other i mean I, a shame in doom's career is that he didn't really tour the way he could have right like if he had gotten a little band together or something i mean he could have it could have really been a big thing but you know Doom did it how we want to do it. It's wonderful how we did it. Absolutely. Well, we're gonna we're gonna uh, end off right here. We'll pick up next time. I believe we'll be talking about. Um, I think Pete and CL is probably a good a good place okay. to go next. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That's easy. Word. So. It's not emotional. <laughs> Stony Island Audio.